following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to jump back into 1 Corinthians. Before I get there, let me just say a couple things. Um, I'm currently in the middle of this book, and I want to I recommend it to you because I think it will, it will do some benefit to your soul. And here's why. Maybe you have uh, watched culture, and you've watched things going on in our world around you, and you've wondered, how in the world did we ever get to this moment? Why is there um, seems, to, seems to be so much chaos, so much identity politics, uh, so many things pushing themselves against the church? And you might wonder, how did this happen? Well, this book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman does something that I've never read before in, in my time, and I've been in the ministry for 30 years. He has taken centuries of literature from, from po- poetry to politics to, um, to philosophy and has tied them all together to show how we've, how we've come to this moment, this apex, this moment in our culture where self is just running crazy, Right? And I cannot recommend this enough to you. Now, I would tell you it's in the bookstore, but Daniel Ritchie bought all of our copies on Thursday night without me knowing about it. So Daniel's here. We need to like issue discipline on him for that. Um, so next week there'll be five copies of this or four because our bookstore uh, gal has told me she's taking one copy that she just bought. Um, so there'll be four copies next week in the bookstore for you. But so you can know it's called the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Um, it is a longer book than I normally recommend, but it's only because I think this will benefit your soul and will not only benefit you, it will challenge you. It will also help you see when you're in a dialogue with somebody about the gospel and you begin to hear about um, their viewpoints on gender or sexuality, they're not just coming from a non-Christian perspective. It's been centuries in the making that got them here and centuries in the making of things that have been taught into our world that just they're living around the the whole idea of self, and I think you'll see it'll be really encouraging for you. It'll be challenging, but it'll be a good read for you. The second thing is, uh, if you were here last week, I just want to warn: I'm not nearly as creative as Dane. Dane, Dane is uniquely gifted in creativity. Um, he has props, he has people, he has things. I don't. I you know I just try to open my Bible and we just talk about Jesus and we let it go. Okay, Dan, Dane does all of that and more. So if you're going to, if you're here last week and you think I'm going to hear this really creative sermon, we're going to hear a, gr- a good sermon, Lord willing from God's word, but we're just going to trust God to meet us today. Okay. All right. So we're going to jump back into our study of first Corinthians. We've been here. We started the study last year, uh, last January, and we're, we, we finished up with chapter nine. So we're going to jump back in and let's just remember where we were. The Corinthians were a divided church. This is a place that they fought over leaders. They kind of put themselves under certain banners of who was a better leader and who was a, a worse leader. They, they fought over issues of morality. In the beginning of chapter 8, we saw a really odd issue popping up. Was there begin to be questions over what freedoms or liberties can Christians do in their lives and still be Christians? So in, in their time frame, the issue was... Can a Christian eat meat that is sacrificed to an idol? So in Corinth, you had this big temple in the backdrop of the city, and people, and they had all sorts of festivals up there, and they sacrificed meat to idols. And there were some that would go up and hang out and eat some of the meat. 
The meat would also be sold in the marketplace. And the question began to be, is that appropriate? And in the church, they actually fought over this issue. They begin to throw verbal stones at one another and verbal jabs at each other. And, and the issue was, was really more than meat. It was really more than eating meat. The question was really a big question. And maybe one that you've actually had. Because there were Christians that were not just buying meat sacrificed to idols. They were actually attending the feast at the idolatrous temple and doing less than savory activities up at that temple and yet claiming that because they were in the church, because they were baptized, because they claimed Christ, they were free to do such things. And there began to be a major division in the church over this issue. Now maybe you've had these kind of questions. It goes like this. Can a, can a Christian do anything they want and still be a Christian? Or what about a person who claimed to be a child of God, but their lifestyle doesn't seem to match what their testimony is or what their claim is? Or maybe it's from another angle, which I've also heard as well, is why do so many Christians get worked up over what other Christians are doing? Just stay in your own lane and get out of my life. Don't bother me with your views of morality. Or it goes even further then. Should a brother or sister in Christ be concerned about the behavior of another brother or sister in Christ? Or do we just leave well enough alone? And so that, that's really the debate. And if you've been keeping up with Christian news recently about a deep theologian, Ravi Zacharias, and the report that came out on him, you, you probably are asking the same questions. And so what I, here's what I want to see this morning. If you're new with us, you should have walked in the door. You got an outline that came in or a bulletin. If you look on the outline, there's a big idea. And here's the big idea. The Christian life is long-term faithfulness to God. This requires humble dependence on God's grace and power every day. I want to say it again. The Christian life is long-term faithfulness to God. This requires humble dependence on God's grace and power every day. Let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 together. <clears throat> And then we're going to pray. Now we stand because we, church, we believe this is God's word, don't we? We believe it's true. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. And this is the reading of God's word. I'll read it. You follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as, an, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written for our own instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray.
Father, we, we desperately need your word today. We need you, though, to open our eyes to the truth that is found in these words of Scripture. And, Lord, we need you to bless the preaching of your word by applying it to our hearts. And, and that can only happen by your spirit, your work among us. And so, Father, if there's anything of eternal value to be done today, it's because you did it. And so we just pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears. Let us be not only exhorted, but let us be encouraged to lean into Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now let's start by looking at the first point today, which is the example before us. Now you're going to notice, anytime you read your Bible, you really want to be looking for like repeating phrases or ideas. And one of the things you're going to notice in verses 6 and 11, this repeated thing that Paul mentions that these things happened as an example. Now the example that Paul is using here is of the Old Testament people of Israel who were the God's chosen people. And you're going to notice in verses 1 through 4 all the benefits and all the blessings that God had given them when Paul mentions that they were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, and they had an Old Testament experience of Christ providing all of this for them. Now what Paul is referencing here in Israel's history is a time when God delivered them from 400 years of tyranny and slavery in Egypt. God miraculously delivered them by doing miracles in Egypt and against Egypt. And then once he got them out of Egypt, he then parted the Red Sea so they could walk across the land of the Red Sea, the Red sea on dry ground, get to the other side, and as they got there, God then shut the sea which separated them from Egypt, and now their journey began. And once they got into this wilderness, heading to the promised land that God had promised them, God miraculously fed them, and God miraculously provided for them with bread from heaven and water from a rock. And he also miraculously led them. He gave them a cloud by day where they could see clearly where God was leading them and a pillar of fire by night. Wouldn't that be cool to have? So you'd know exactly where God wants you to go. Well, that's what they had. And Paul wrote that God, Christ, was doing all of this for them. But he gives a warning in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now to get our head wrapped around this example, let's understand what Paul's getting at. When you read your Bible, one of the dangers of reading the Bible is we think it's two books. We go Old, Old Testament, New Testament, and we say things like this. Well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of grace. That's a really bad way to look at the Bible. It is actually one full book that is displaying from beginning to end the way that God created man, the way we fell and sinned against God, and the entire story of how God is redeeming man to himself and then restoring all things at the end of the book. So the book begins in a garden and it ends in a paradise. And in between, you got the struggle of, of us as humans doing our stuff. So when you read in a simplistic way the true story of the Old Testament people of God, you're getting examples of the struggle and the strife and the challenge that they faced that we also face in the New Testament era. 
And so what you notice is you can say some things like they were actually forerunners or pioneers for us as the people of God. And we can watch and see the things that they struggled with to know what are the struggles that we might face. So when you look at an example of them being freed out of Egypt, out of the tyranny and bondage of slavery, it gives you a visual or a picture that God is freeing us of how God freed us from the bondage and slavery of our own personal sin by sending the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And when you watch their wilderness journey of God miraculously providing for them and being their father and their God and their guide, you can think as well to the New Testament era when God is our provider. He's our healer. He's our caregiver. He's our provider and he's our guide. Yet, the Apostle Paul is giving a warning. Like the children of God before us, just because we have those benefits doesn't guarantee we'll make it home. See, there's a danger in this text that Paul is addressing to the Corinthians, and really one that we as American Christians should pay really close attention to. And it's basically this. The danger is presuming on the kindness and mercy of God because of past blessings and believing that we can do anything we want without consequence. The Corinthians, some of them had fallen into a dangerous trap. They believed that if they did all the religious stuff, went to church, were baptized, took the Lord's Supper, they were free to live however they wanted to live, wherever they wanted to live, without any concerns for their eternal destiny. Matter of fact, if you know much about the church in Corinth, they were probably the most gifted church in the history of Christendom. They had more spiritual gifts running through them, and Paul applauds them like no other church about their about their their love for spiritual gifts. So they had great preachers. They had incredible energized church services, even though they were disorganized and chaotic. And Paul sets all that stuff in order to basically tell them, you, you have incredible gifts, yet they were in danger of not finishing well like the people of Israel before them. Now here's a question for you. Do you you see this in your own life? are Are you concerned about not finishing well? I see in my life, I can tell you that. I've been in the ministry for 30 years. I've been in the ministry since I was 19. I can remember the day vividly when I was 21 years old sitting in a church foyer after a sermon was preached on a particular sin, and I begin to see in me that there was really no good thing that dwelled in me that was my flesh, and the danger that my own personal sin could cause me. I've been in the church more than I've been in any other institution. I was saved at the age of nine. And yet it is easy to take the kindness of God and be arrogantly overconfident of the grace of God and think that sin could never capture me. What about you? Do you see that about yourself? Do you understand that in you dwells no good thing that is in your flesh? Do you, do you think that you're immune from being captivated like the children of Israel were immune? Listen, there's a trail of tears and grief and painful sorrows of those who've gone before us that didn't finish well. And we should learn from their lesson. And the children of Israel in this text are the lesson that Paul gives us. It's the example he gives us. Now let's look at the sinful cravings, point two, and you're going to notice this in verses 6 through 10. 
Notice how Paul wrote this. He said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now you can see in the text as it stays up on the screen, there's four sins that are listed. Idolatry, immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. And we're going to cover those in a moment. But I want you to notice something. They're all under one heading. Reread verse 6 with me again and notice what Paul says. Now these things took place as examples for us that or so that we might not desire evil as they did. The best way to phrase this is so that we should not desire or crave the evil things that they did. In other words, he's saying we must be on guard, be on alert, or we will be captured by the same evil stuff those Old Testament people of God were captured by. See, each of the sins that Paul lists in the text are all underneath the idea of sinful cravings or sinful desires. In other words, it would be wrong of us to assume that the things that the Israelites were captured by that we could never be captured by. And notice that these these sins are called desires. This is really important. Because when we see sin before it ever becomes sin as desire, we'll understand how to deal with it. A.C. Thistleton put it like this. Too often, human sin is portrayed as a, as more as a matter of committing wrong acts or of failing to live up to some standard than of misdirected desires that then find expression in wrong acts and in wrong attitudes. If we think about sin as merely external, we will miss the power of the gospel to change us internally, which then changes the way we live. And help us fight off sin internally and no longer give in to sin. These are desires in us. It's an internal battle every day to fight against these sinful cravings. But then notice that these cravings, are he calls them evil. Now we think of evil as something like satanic or... Um, you know, something that's terribly awful. But the idea of these desires you're going to find are simply this. It's when we become dissatisfied in God's provision and care, and we begin to be tempted to go outside of God's boundaries to feed the lust of our own desires. The reason why God, Paul, puts them underneath these sinful cravings is he wants us to see the root is from within us. Not from without of us. It's why you've heard me say before, when somebody, you get angry at somebody, you may say, they're making me mad. And I think the proper response is, they are an instrument of God's grace in your life to reveal how mad you already are. It's just your sin coming out that they just happen to tip on a little bit. Sinful desires within us lead to sin being acted out of us. And we're going to see it in each of the four sins listed. Take idolatry that's given in verse 7. The issue is not just worshiping other gods. The issue really is, at its root, is believing that the one true God isn't good enough or kind enough to give us everything we need to be satisfied and fulfilled in this life and the next. 
That really is the root of idolatry. In the Corinthian culture, it was found in the pantheon of the Rome, of Roman mythology. In Corinth in particular, it was in the idolatry found at the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where they had love feast, temple prostitution, and every manner of self-indulgence imaginable. And what Paul is getting at is, idolatry is the baseline for all human hedonism. It is the foundation for every sin imaginable. Is there no wonder, while the very first commandment that God gave in Exodus chapter 20 is this commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God starts with an exclusive claim, I am your God, and there shall be, you shall have no other gods before me, because all other nine commandment sins are all violations of the first commandment. And for the Christian, many times our idolatry isn't loving or doing forbidden things per se. It doesn't always start there. It usually starts with loving good things too much. It usually begins with worshiping the gifts of the Creator more than the Creator. And at the sinful root of idolatry is this belief that satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment are found outside the good design of God. And where does that begin? In our sinful cravings. And you can see this acted out in sexual immorality which you see in verse 8. The sinful root of sexual immorality is the belief that our physical appetites and our sexual needs cannot be met by the limitations that God has placed on us because God is not good enough to give us everything we need. You can see the idolatry found in it. God has said that sex is a gift to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage for the fulfillment of the other the other, the other person in the marriage, which in turn brings maximum pleasure to the individual. But sexual immorality says something radically different. It says maximum pleasure for the individual is found in allowing these cravings to run wild and as wide and as far as you want them to go and believing that is true freedom. But in reality, sexual immorality is the idolatry of self at its height. It's the belief that my sexual pleasure can be found outside the boundaries of God because my sexual pleasure is supreme. Therefore, it's okay to disobey God's commands because my sexual pleasure is king. Immorality is the idolatry of our selfish, sinful cravings. And you see the same issue in verse 9, putting Christ to the test. The issue that Paul's pointing to here is a time in, in Israel's wilderness wandering when they were outside of Egypt, God had freed them. They, they began to get hungry. And they started grumbling and complaining. They started questioning God. They thought they were going to starve to death. They, were, they began to raise their fists toward the heavens, toward God, and they began to be angry at Moses, their leader. And they said it was way better to go back to Egypt. And some of them wanted to turn back. They put Christ to the test by doubting God's faithfulness to them. And listen, believing that tyrannical Egypt was better than the freedom of God found in the wilderness. Do you see their sinful cravings and their idolatry coming to root? In the same way, the Corinthian Christians, who believed that their former ways of idolatry and immorality were way better, so they put Christ to the test by going back into the temple for those love feasts and dabbling and playing around and mixing in of all that stuff that went on at the temple. They were acting as if things were better at the temple under enslavement of sin than they were in freedom 
the freedom that Christ had bought for them. And because of their sinful cravings, they put Christ to the test. And you see the same issue with grumbling. Rather than gratitude that God had miraculously delivered them out of the slavery of Egypt and provided guidance by, you know, from heaven and bread from heaven and water from a rock, they grumbled and they complained and they bickered against Moses and God. And Paul likens this to what is happening in Corinth. They were grumbling and complaining against Paul who brought them the gospel of grace. They questioned his authority, his apostleship, his oratory skills, his wisdom, and even called into question his Christian faith. And in turn, they were grumbling against God. See, in gratitude, grumbling says that God's gifts aren't good enough and our sinful cravings say we should have more outside the boundaries of God because God isn't good. Now, what I want you to notice here, and I don't want you to miss, these sins, these four sins, are just the tip of the iceberg in Corinth. So you just got to see them as just, just the tip of the iceberg. Just like the Israelites before went back into Egypt, wanted to go back into Egypt, which is all they knew, the Corinthians who came to Christ wanted to go back into that temple because that's all they knew. And friends, listen, that's what we do. That's the temptations within us. What Paul is getting at is this. Just because we say we've received Christ doesn't make us immune to being captive by our sinful cravings and the disaster that can come from giving in to those cravings. We're not immune as God's children from God's discipline when we sin against God. Matter of fact, we should expect God's discipline if we're His children and we sin against Him in this way. The Christian who commits adultery and repents won't lose forgiveness from God, but they most certainly will lose the trust of their spouse. They might lose their marriage. They could lose a close relationship with their kids. The Christian who steals and repents won't lose God's grace, but they might go to jail. might cost them a lot of money. See, because we're a Christian doesn't mean we're immune to our sinful cravings that are very present with us or the disaster that comes in from giving in to those sinful cravings. Every one of us, every one of us has what I like to call our pet sins. They're the little things that we like to pull out every now and then. They're kind of our favorite thing to play with. It's like the Chia Pet. You know, you pour on it, it kind of begins to explode and grow. And we just water that thing periodically because if we keep it out, it feels safe to us. If we want to dig further, we could call this our pet idol. And you know what your pet idol is, right? It's, it's when you get mad because you can't get it. Or it's been forbidden. We're willing to disobey God for it. And if we're not careful, where that begins to lead us is we begin to be willing to give up all the blessings in Christ for it. This stuff, when we see it, what Paul is driving home is, when you see that, it should be checked, it should be evaluated, it should be confessed, it should be repented of, you should turn to Christ. See, it's one thing to trip, blow up, and know it, and then turn, and maybe do it again, and go through that cycle again. It's a whole other thing to keep giving in knowingly, habitually, rebelliously, as some in Israel were doing before us. And as some of the Corinthians were doing before us. And still think you're okay in Jesus. That has the potential for eternal disaster. We're not immune. Not immune. 
to giving into our sinful cravings and the disaster that comes by giving into them. Now that leads us to the last point because this is the most, my mind, the most important one, which is two attitudes to consider. See, what Paul does in verses 12 through 14 is he doesn't leave us hopeless. I don't know about you, I, I read a text like this and because I know what's in me, I immediately get nervous. Right? I, I have thought long and hard. I'm 50 years old. I've thought long and hard about the danger of giving in to my sinful cravings. And the effects that would have on my wife, my kids, and you. The people I love the most. And I've thought about it a lot. And to be honest with you, it scares me of what that could look like giving in to sinful cravings. And the effect that would have on people and the glory of Christ and the good of Christ. And if you know yourself at all, you're looking internally thinking, this, thinking the same thing. Like, my word, what, what could come out of me that could destroy my marriage or my life or my family or the things I love around me? But what Paul does when you read the text, Paul does not leave us hopeless. Paul gives us Hope, he gives it in two ways. He gives it to us in a warning, and he gives it to us in a deliverance. So let's, let's look at what they are. There's two attitudes that I want you to notice. And the first one is found in verse 12. And it's one that I would call presumptuous pride. It's a very familiar verse. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let me give you a, a kind of a goofy, funny example that will help you see what I'm talking about. So some of you got word maybe last week that Joe and I were gone we were, we were actually skiing in Bend. And some of you, when you heard that, you immediately went to panic mode because you know that I've blown out both of my Achilles and I've had them both surgically repaired. And you probably thought to yourself, we're going to see Dave walking in crutches next week because of something happened on the mountain, right? And if you thought that and you prayed for us, thank you. One guy called me out front and said, you're safe. My prayers were answered. Thank God. Okay, that's awesome. Um, but let me, let me just give you an input in. So last week, Joe and I were heading up to the mountain. I said to her, hey, listen, every five years, I ruptured one Achilles. The first one was my left one, playing softball. I'd just been, I'd been working out, felt really good about where I was at, blew out my Achilles. Five years later, working out again, felt really good, and my daughter challenged me to a race on the beach, and I took off running, and three steps in, my right one blows out, and I get that one surgically repaired. So I learned my lesson. What I found was, all my working out made me feel pretty good about myself. So I said, this time around, we're not going to think good about ourselves. I'm going to know that I'm old. I'm going to know that my legs may not hold up. And we're just going to stay on the nice green slopes all day long. I mean, we're just going to take our time. We'll figure it out. And we're, just gonna, we're not going to get hurt. And she made me promise because she was nervous about it as well. Because we had not skied in 20 years. It's our first time skiing in 20 years together. We were thrilled about it. So we get up on the mountain, we've had a good day, we're zipping along, and we come across what we used to do, we used to like to do blue runs. And I come across a blue run, and I said, what do you, what do you, what do you think? She's like, well, if you think it's okay. And I, I get right over to the edge of that thing, I look down, and I went, there's a lot of moguls in this, they look way higher than I remember. Um, let's, just, let's just go back over here to the green slope. And we kind of, you know, screw back over. And we skied down and the whole thing. So I got done with the whole day, not one fall, not one injury. Yeah. I mean, we're excited about that, right? <laughs> I am borderline convinced if I went down that blue run, I would have blown out an ACL or something, right? Hip replacement, I don't know, right? My age, you never know what could happen. 
And so the point I want you to get it, we do that in Christianity, in our faith. We start feeling good about ourselves. We start feeling like we're making it. We feel like we're kind of... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he might fall. See, if you think you can go toe-to-toe with a blue run in your sinful nature, you're fooling yourself. If you think you can go toe-to-toe with your sinful cravings by yourself, you're crazy. If you think you're good to go because you've been baptized, you took the Lord's Supper today, you know, you feel like, hey, man, I got this in me, I'm doing good. You prayed every day this week. You read your Bible. I mean, it's like, man, you're dialed in. You've been memorizing scripture. You better check yourself. Pride, and I'm telling you, as a pride man who's working toward humility, to others who are proud working toward humility, pride always comes before a fall. Always. Always. A presumptuous Christian is one who thinks they can sin now and ask forgiveness later. A proud Christian thinks they can stand on their own. So the first help Paul gives us is a warning. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot walk into a pit of vipers and not be bit. You cannot visit certain websites and not be scarred. You cannot go to certain places and not be captured. You cannot stand on your own against your sinful cravings. You cannot do it. So the warning Paul gives is, hey, don't be, don't be proudly presumptuous thinking you got it together here. And if you see this in you, the next point will help you, which is the next attitude. It's actually a deliverance. And I'm going to call this humble dependence. Notice how Paul put it in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, in writing this, he's writing to Christians. People who put their trust and their confidence in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And because of that, Paul can be sure of something. He's sure that to you, Christian, God, your God, is faithful. Your God is good. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond the abilities that he's given you to handle the temptation that you are going through. Your God is faithful. So so just for a moment, think about that. If you're in Jesus, if you're in Jesus, you can never say, I can't change. You can never say, I can't stop. You can never say, there's no way out. Because in Jesus, God is faithful to to not allow you to be tempted beyond the ability he's given you. Meaning in Christ, God is faithful to care for you in this temptation. See, listen now, outside of Christ, if you're here, you're not a Christian, or you're watching online, not a Christian, outside of Christ, you can't claim that. Outside of Christ, you are captured by your sin, you're in bondage to your sin, you can't change without Christ, and you can't stop without Christ, and there's no way out. That's why we as Christians would say to you, you need to turn to Christ. You need forgiveness of sin, you need power to overcome yourself. That's true freedom. The ability to live in a way that glorifies and honors God, not in the way that you think you're living. See, you're, you're giving into sinful cravings because you have to. But in the power of Christ, Christian, listen, you don't have to. 
Your sinful cravings do not have any power over you anymore. You do not have to give in to profanity anymore. You don't have to, to, to lust anymore. You don't have to be impatient anymore. You don't have to be angry anymore. What freedom there is in that. And Paul is certain that these temptations that we have, they're not uncommon to, it, to anybody. I mean, they're very common Everybody's going through it. This means that somebody before you, like the Israelites or like the Corinthians, some examples are good, some are not so good, have all gone before you. So you might think, man, my trials I have, my temptations, they're way unique. Nobody else can understand. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, hey, guess what? They're common. So take yourself off the high horse that you happen to think you're on and realize these are not uncommon. A lot of people have gone through this. And because they're not uncommon, or because, and because they're common, normal everyday stuff, God, God is faithful to not tempt you beyond your ability and always, always provides a way of escape that you may be able to stand firm. Always. God's saying, this stuff's always going on. It's common. All the time. So you think temptation's unusual, you're not reading your Bible very closely. If you think your trials are are uncommon, you're not looking at Scripture very clearly. Here's the beauty of being in Christ. In Christ, you have the power to do exactly what verse 14 says. Flee from immorality. If we put flee from immorality on the page without Christ, it's just behaviorism. But in Christ, it is the power to be free from every sin imaginable. That's wonderful news. You have the power to get away, walk away, turn away, and run. In Christ, you have that power. What incredible news. And you notice how intriguing this is? He says, there's a way of escape that you can endure. You know what that, you know what that means? That means the presence of sinful cravings is always present. It's always present. The presence of sin still remains. But the power to overcome that sin, stand firm against that sin, and endure that process and that that sin is equally as present, and yet, Paul would say, more abundantly powerful than that temptation. Meaning, as he would say in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace does abound all the more. Do you see what you have in Christ? Temptation seems strong, but God's grace and power is more strong. You can say amen to that. That's okay. All right? Amen. I agree. Right? See, undergirding verse 13 is this beauty. It's humble dependence. Rather than proudly presumptuous, we're every day realizing, I I can't stand on my own. I can't. I can't, I can't withstand against the temptations of this world, my own sin. But God, God is with me. God is faithful to help me. And God will give me strength to escape and endure. And this is to be a moment-by-moment moment dependence. I mean, how many of you have felt like all of a sudden, you, you know, you thought through a thing, maybe it's with your children, and you go, man, I'm being a good parent right now. It's amazing. We're kind of patiently walking this stuff out. I'm, I'm handling the struggle going on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... Wham! It's like, where did that come from? Did a demon just jump in my heart and take over my life? It's a moment-by-moment humble dependence upon God. Or you're at work and you feel like you're processing things pretty well, and a a co-worker comes in and says something that just bumps your cup just a little bit, and suddenly, wow, it comes out. 
Where did that come from? The sinful cravings within you. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment humble dependence before God. This is why I said at the beginning. The Christian life is long-term faithfulness to God. It requires humble dependence on God's grace and power every day. Christian, listen. Your God is faithful. There is no temptation that is coming at you today that your God has not given you a way out through the power of Christ. Not one. There is no sin that has to overcome you anymore today because of the power of Christ at work in you. You have the strength in Christ, listen, to be faithful to God over the long haul. So if you want to know how to do that, then right right now, be humbly dependent upon God's grace. And right now, be humbly dependent upon God's grace. And right now, be humbly dependent upon God's grace. Over and over and over again. Because only God, only God has the power to help you and get you home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the preaching of your word that you take your word out and you apply it to our hearts so so vastly you and so widely. There, Lord, you know the need of every one of your people that are here. Would you, would you this morning, as you so faithfully do, would you do business with your people? Lord, there's some of us in the room that We are seeing our sinful cravings, whether it be jealousy, whether it be pride, whether it be covetousness, whether it be lust, whether it be comfort. Maybe it's uh, the fear of man. Would Would you raise those and show us our sinful cravings? And help us to see our need for humble dependence on your grace every moment of every day. There's some non-Christians, Lord, that are here and they they have listened and I'm so grateful and I pray this morning that you'd help them see their need. They, they cannot stop their sin without Christ. Would you turn them to Jesus? And Father, there's some believers here and Christians here that are just discouraged. They just feel like they've been beaten down by their own sin and They don't feel like there's any way out. And I pray this morning that you would show them the hope, the power of their God, who in Christ set them free from the power and the penalty of their sin and gives them a way to escape and stand firm amidst any temptation imaginable. Let them know that they are not alone that their temptations are not uncommon, that all of us have gone through it, and meet them today. God, you, you are good to your people. You are faithful. Help us to do business with you in a way that truly transforms our lives. And today, if we hear your voice, that we would not harden our hearts before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.